The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's a quote that I'm sure you might have heard of before, but it's so, so helpful. To keep the main thing the main thing is the main thing. That's true for business. That's true for sports. It's true for churches in the realm of business. Understand what the main thing is that you need to be doing as a business and make that the main thing you do. For sports, if it's playing basketball, uh, you've got to practice, and that's the main thing. You might be doing other things throughout the week. There may be other things that crunch your time as a basketball coach and your time with the players. There may be advertising opportunities and places where you go and say, we need to have a photo session as the Phoenix Suns, and we need to do this and that and the other. But the main thing is what you do on the basketball court, and that's your primary responsibility as the coach of the Phoenix Suns or whatever sports team you might be talking about, whatever sports the flavor happens to be. It's true for churches. Uh, pastors are called upon to make the Word of God and prayer key priorities for their life and for their ministry. It's true for Christians. I love uh, the White Horse Inn and the ministry of Dr. Michael Horton, and uh, he came up with a phrase regarding the gospel, getting it right and getting it out. I love that. I don't think I can improve on it. I use that myself, although I try to give credit to the White Horse Inn as uh, the one who, uh, the people and the ministry that put that saying out, the gospel, getting it right and getting it out. That's the main thing. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, on the doctrine. Keep a close watch on yourself, that's your own life, and the teaching. Two things need to be in view. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearers. There's an inherent warning in that. Not doing that might just mean you don't save yourself. You're not saved yourself because you stray off into falsehood, either on a moral level yourself or on a doctrinal level and a teaching level. The NIV reads this way, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. That's the message, That's the, those are the words of the Holy Spirit. He does not say, forget doctrine. He says the exact opposite. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. I believe that's the, the, the main thing. God as he really is and the gospel as it really is. And there's such a dearth of that in the modern day professing church. And one of the things we need to understand is the Holy Spirit is who he declares himself to be, not my feelings about him or my impressions about him. Just saying, well, as I read, read the Bible, that doesn't sit well with me. No, 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 if you're reading the Bible, that's Holy Spirit-inspired instruction. That is what the Holy Spirit wants you to understand and conform to. 
That's right. Submit to it. The Bible is over us. We don't say, well, I don't like that particular verse. That doesn't sit well with me. No, we need to come under the Word of God. And the Bible tells us doctrine is very vital. In fact, a church not interested in doctrine is a church without the Holy Spirit. Because what the Holy Spirit does is it, he creates an interest in sound doctrine in the heart of the true believer. It's Jesus who said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's doctrine, ladies and gentlemen. We need to get it right regarding who Jesus is. So, God as he really is, and the gospel as it really is, is the main thing in the life of the believer and of the church. Getting the gospel right, getting God right, is a task we're all called upon to participate in. Any professing Christian with no interest in true doctrine, again, is someone without the Holy Spirit. That's a bold statement to make. But the Holy Spirit creates, because he is the spirit of truth, a desire for truth. Well, how can we know the truth? By means of the word of God. Jesus said, continue in my word. Then you'll be my disciples indeed. You'll be true disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. You'll, it will set you free. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. When we think about this, there's been many challenges I've had in my own life and ministry. And one of them came from a gentleman who was critical of me because in hearing me, he hadn't heard me in a couple of decades. He said, I've been praying for you, John. And uh, I had a little picture and I thought, oh, oh, here we go. And it was of Jesus standing outside the door of your church with a little clipboard checking people's doctrine on the way in. And um, he says, I'm concerned for you. you. You kind of stress doctrine a lot. I said, uh, sir, um, may I respond? He said, yes. I said, may I respond in one word? He said, yes. I said, Galatians. And the point was made. You see, the book of Galatians is still in our Bibles. And the book of Galatians is inspired writing. Paul, under the help and influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit, wrote and communicated what the Holy Spirit wanted to communicate. And as we go to the book of Galatians, guess what it is? It's a book about doctrine. An entire book related to the idea and the concept that you must get God and his gospel right. Galatians chapter 1, Paul and an apostle, not from man, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He goes on in verse 6 to write these words. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. By the way, the gospel re relates to the grace of Christ. But in moving away from that, the Galatian church was turning to a different gospel. And then he elaborates, verse 7, not that there is another one. There isn't another gospel, but you're turning to one. There's only one true gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
Verse 8, but if you, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema is the Greek word. We uh, transliterate that into English as anathema. Let him be anathema. That means under the curse, the eternal curse of God. So even if an angel shows up and preaches a different gospel than the one we preach to you, let him be under the curse of God. But notice it's not just an angel. Even if we, or an angel, even if I come to you, we as apostles come to you and preach a different gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And by way of emphasis, as they did in the ancient world, rather than making a bold uh, writing and writing it out in big font or uh, the way we might emphasize something today, the way they emphasized something in the first century was to repeat it. That's what he does in verse 9. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed under the anathema of God. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? He answers the question, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, as the rest of the epistle goes on to make clear, the truth of the gospel is at stake, and get this wrong, and you're not in the kingdom of God. In fact, those who were troubling the Galatians, the Judaizers, he calls false brothers, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4, pseudo-adolphoi. They look like brothers, they smell like brothers, they sing hymns like brothers, but they're false brothers. Why? They're presenting a different gospel. And here's the main thing we need to grasp. All they did was add one thing to the gospel. That's all they did. They believed in the true God. They believed Jesus was the true Messiah. They believed that he died and rose again. They believed, they believed, they believed. They simply added one thing to the gospel, happened to be circumcision, and said, you must also, after believing in Jesus, do this in order to be saved. They added works to faith. Paul says, false brothers, false brothers, you look like brothers, but you're not brothers. In fact, as Galatians goes on, Galatians goes on, it's very, very clear that righteousness, which is the essence of what we need to be in right standing with God, is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 16 of chapter 2, yet we know that a person is not justified, that's to be declared right in the sight of God, by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Again, the gentleman I was talking to did not like my reply of Galatians, and he cut me off. I've not heard from him since that day. But Galatians is part of the New Testament, and ladies and gentlemen, to add one thing to the gospel, 
makes someone a false teacher and they're not even true believers if they continue in their falsehood. It's evidence of the fact they're not true believers, false believers. The truth of the gospel. In fact, verse 14 is a very key verse, Galatians 2.14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that, that's Peter, before them all, if, the, if you then, being a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's the point. The truth of the gospel is clear. It's so clear that that truth has been revealed that you can either be in step with it or not in step with it. It's not a fuzzy thing. The gospel is not fuzzy. Oh, you, well, there's some people have, have this view of justification. There's others that have that view of justification. No, Paul is very clear. The Holy Spirit is laser-like in informing the Galatians, what the truth of the gospel is. And here's an, an application. Since, I won't start the sentence with the word if, but since the gospel is clear and to add one thing to the gospel makes a false gospel, that is why indeed the Roman Catholic Church has a false gospel because they haven't just added one thing. They've added dozens of things to the gospel and their own literature, their own writings, their own authoritative statements are very, very clear. It's not ambiguous. It's not fuzzy where they stand. The Judaizers added one thing to the gospel and came under the anathema of God. False brothers, pseudo-Adolfoi, even though they sang the hymns, they believed so, so much about Jesus. But they added one thing to the gospel and Paul's message is grace. To be grace is pure grace. The gospel concerns who our God is and what he's done for sinners. It's about Christ, his person and his work. It's about his life and his death for us on the cross and his resurrection. And that was Luther's discovery, Martin Luther. Christ did it. He did all of it. I want to just say this. Doctrine matters. Truth about God and the truth about the gospel. Later in Luther's life, in 1545, he recounted his conversion experience. It's uh, remarkable to read his words. And he understood what God has done for us in the gospel. Let me read Luther's own words. Meanwhile, I had already during that year returned to interpret the Psalter, that's the book of Psalms, anew. I had confidence in the fact that I was more skillful after I had lectured in the university on St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the one to the Hebrews. I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single word in chapter 1, and then he quotes Romans chapter 1, in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. So that phrase, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, that stood in my way 
in terms of understanding. For I hated that word righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with, with which God is righteous and punishes the right, unrighteous sinner. Let me just insert here. He understood that the phrase, the righteousness of God, talked about God being righteous and how he punishes the unrighteous sinner. That was his former understanding. And he writes this then. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, by the things I did. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce, fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. He's talking about Romans 1.17. Most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted at last by the mercy of God, meditating day and night. I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he through, who through faith is righteous shall live. Let me say that again. In it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it's written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, and the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word, righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. End of quote. He's obviously referring to Romans 1, 17. In verse 16, Paul had written, 
for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he who through faith is righteous shall live. That's clear. That's the gospel. This is the doctrine, yes, that word doctrine, of justification by faith alone. Christ takes on the sinner's sin at the cross. Christ had achieved righteousness in his obedience, in his life of perfect fulfillment of the law and in his death on the cross. And that was Luther's discovery. Christ did it. He did it for us. He did it and he did all of it. To get to the heart of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we need to understand another doctrine, that of imputation. That's the heart and soul of the gospel. And it refers to the fact that in the Bible, there are three imputations, three countings, counting towards someone or something. And we know of the first from places like Romans chapter 5, where it explains that Adam's sin affected us all. And we, as people born after Adam, are imputed with Adam's sin. It is counted towards us. We understand that because of something called a federal headship. He was our federal head in the garden and acted on our behalf. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam's sin not only affected Adam, it affected everyone who was born after Adam. We were born with original sin. That's what is meant by the term. We're born as sinners. And therefore, we don't sin because, let me, let me say it another way, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. We've inherited it from Adam. Romans 5 is all about that. Just read from verse 12 on through to the end of the chapter. Uh, other places too, but it's expressly uh, put there very, very clearly. So that's the first imputation, Adam's sin to the entire human race. The second imputation or counting is Jesus on the cross where God imputes to him who is perfectly righteous in and of himself the sins of all those who would ever believe, God's elect. Isaiah 53 points that out. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the rebellion of us all. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he'd lived my life, the life of the sinner. And our sins were laid on him. He remained absolutely spotless, righteous, without blemish, without sin. Second uh, Corinthians 5 verse 21 says it this way, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what's the third imputation? That is 
the righteous life of Christ is credited to the believer, the one who believes in Jesus. So we're saved by means of the death of Christ, which means pardon for us as sinners, but also the righteous life of Christ that is credited to us. Praise the Lord. Read so many parts of Scripture, Philippians chapter 3. Not having a righteousness of my own through the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness that is of God, that is by faith. This doctrine of justification by faith alone, Luther said, is the article of the standing or falling church. What that means is, get this right and the church stands, get this wrong and it is now a falling church. It is now out of favor with God. It is now a false church. Justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. That's another way of translating uh, Martin Luther's words. Luther also wrote this, whoever departs from the article of justification, does not know God and is an idolater. For when this article has been taken away, nothing remains but error, hypocrisy, godlessness, and idolatry, although it may seem to be the height of truth, worship of God, holiness, etc. If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. Here's another quote. When the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. Therefore, it is necessary constantly to inculcate and impress it. In other words, there's a constant need to teach the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Continuing with the quote, as Moses, as Moses says of his law, for it cannot be inculcated and urged enough or too much. Indeed, even though we learn it well, and hold to it, yet there is no one who apprehends it perfectly or believes it with a full affection and heart. So very trickish is our flesh, fighting as it does against the obedience of the Spirit. End of quote. Again, according to Luther, you can't teach this enough. Well, you might think that's possible. I, I, Luther says no, because our flesh always wants to determine our relationship with God by our actions in some way, even if it's a mixture of grace and works. We want to put something of us into the equation as to how we stand right before God. That's our natural bent. But justification by faith alone stresses the person and the work of Christ alone and his work alone for our salvation. Another quote of Luther, this doctrine, talking about justification by faith alone, is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. For no one who does not hold this article, or to use Paul's expression, this sound doctrine, Titus 2 verse 1, is able to teach a right in the church or successfully to resist any adversary. This is the heel of the seed that opposes the old serpent and crushes its head. That is why Satan, in turn, cannot but persecute it. End of, end of quote. 
back in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church believed then, as it does now, that justification is by grace, through faith and because of Christ. It's actually a scandal when we say that Rome believes we're justified by works without grace. No, that, that's not true. They, they believe in grace. They believe in faith. They believe in Christ. What Rome does not believe is that justification is by faith alone or by grace alone or by Christ alone. For Rome, justification is by grace plus merit, through faith plus works, by Christ plus the sinner's contribution of inherent righteousness. In contrast to all that, Luther and the Reformers called the church back to the one true biblical gospel. Salvation is by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, because of Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. I want to ask you, where, where do you stand? I trust you're able to echo the words of the hymn writer Edward Mote when he wrote these famous words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, then may I in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The gospel is always at the risk of distortion. Always. There's always an attack on the gospel. And in our generation, I think that without doubt, the greatest attack has come from something called the New Perspective on Paul, led by men like N.T. Wright, who is very, very prominent. Uh, especially in the United Kingdom, but has uh, much influence even, even in the United States. And there is a very full, blatant denial of imputation, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to the sinner. But there's two sides to the gospel. The good news of the New Testament is the objective side as well as the subjective side. Let me explain that in the words of Sproul. The objective content of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he accomplished in his life. The subjective side is the question of how the benefits of Christ's work are appropriated to the believer. How do we get what he did on the cross and by his wounds and by his stripes we're healed? How do we understand and appropriate the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that's where the doctrine of justification comes to the fore. To quote Sproul again, many issues were, were, were involved in the Reformation, but the core matter, the material issue of the Reformation was the gospel, especially the doctrine of justification. There was no great disagreement between the Roman Catholic Church authorities and the Protestant reformers about the objective side. All the parties agreed that Jesus was divine, the Son of God, 
and of the Virgin Mary, and that he lived a life of perfect obedience, that he died on the cross in an atoning death and was raised from the grave. The battle was over the second part of the gospel, the subjective side, the question of how the benefits of Christ are applied to the believer. The reformers believed and taught that we're justified by faith alone. Faith, they said, is the soul, S-O-L-E, soul instrumental cause of our justification. By this, they meant that we receive all the benefits of Jesus' work through putting our trust in him alone. The Roman communion also taught that faith is a necessary condition for salvation. At the Seminole Council of Trent, which took place between 1545 and 1563, which formulated Rome's response to the Reformation, the Roman Catholic authorities declared that faith affords three things, the initium, the fundamentum, and the radix. That is, faith is the beginning of justification, the foundation of justification, and the root of justification. But Rome held that a person can have true faith and still not be justified because there was much more to the Roman system. In reality, and again I'm continuing to quote Sproul, the Roman view of the gospel as expressed at Trent was that justification is accomplished through the sacraments. Initially, the recipient must accept and cooperate in baptism by which he receives justifying grace. He retains that grace until he commits a mortal sin. Mortal sin is called mortal because it kills the grace of justification. The sinner then must be justified a second time. That happens through the sacrament of penance, which the Council of Trent defined as a second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. The fundamental difference was this. Trent said that God does not justify anyone until real righteousness inheres within the person. In other words, God does not declare a person righteous until he or she is righteous. So according to Roman Catholic doctrine, justification depends on a person's sanctification. In contrast, the reformer said justification is based on the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus. The only ground by which a person can be saved is Jesus' righteousness, which is reckoned to him when he believes. There were not radically different views of salvation. Let me just uh, start that sentence again. I'm quoting and I've quoted it wrong. Let me start again. There were radically different views of salvation. They could not be reconciled. One of them was the gospel. One of them was not. Thus, what was at stake in the Reformation was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the Council of Trent, um, many affirmations were made and it declared justification by faith alone to be anathema, anathema, ignoring the many plain teachings of Scripture, such as Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It means alone as apart from works. 
and Romans 3.28 says it. So at the Council of Trent in the 16th, 16th century, though I am sure they did not intend to do this, what they actually did was place its eternal and irrevocable curse on the gospel, announcing it as actually heretical. I'm sure they didn't mean to do that. That was not the intent, but that's what happened. The canons of the Council of Trent, the most relevant ones, let me just read them to you. Canon 9, which is still in place today. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. There it is. Canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, let him be anathema. I'm guilty on both accounts, by, uh, by the way. I, I believe that we're justified by faith alone as, as sinners. And I believe that we're justified by the sole imputation of the justice or righteousness of Christ. Yep, I'm under Rome's anathema. Don't believe I'm under God's though, praise the Lord. Canon 12. If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that is, it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. Canon 24. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through, through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase, let him be anathema. As I read these words, it's, it's chilling to me because there's no doubt Rome understood the doctrine of the reformers. They've act accurately portrayed what the reformers were preaching. Canon 30. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world, either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. Canon 32. If anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God, that they are not also the good merits of him justified, or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ does not truly merit an increase of grace in eternal life, let him be anathema. Dr. Michael Horton uh, rightly noted this. Let me quote him. It was, therefore, not the evangelicals who were condemned in 1564, but the evangel itself, the good news, which alone is the power of God unto salvation, was judged by Rome to be so erroneous that anyone who embraced it was to be regarded as condemned. Well, that was a long time ago, the Council of Trent. Has Rome modified its position? It has not. Again, to quote Dr. Horton, the Vatican II documents, 
of Rome, as well as the new catechism of the Catholic Church, re-invoke the theological position of the Council of Trent, condemning the gospel of justification by an imputed righteousness. End of quote. See, knowing full well that Rome's full curse is on me right now for believing what I do, I quote the scripture, embrace the true gospel of my Savior, the Lord Jesus. Romans 4 verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Ladies and gentlemen, God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't wait until sinners are righteous in and of themselves, when righteousness inheres within them before he declares them righteous. He doesn't wait for us to be righteous in and of ourselves before he declares us righteous. While we're still sinners, but now trusting in Jesus Christ because of imputation, because of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, our sins imputed to Christ on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24. Because of his righteousness for us, I stand justified now and forever. So does anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ alone. If he waited until I was righteous before he declared me righteous, I would be in total despair of ever getting there. But the word gospel means good news. And the amazing good news of the gospel is about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection breaks all the power of despair and saves sinners by supplying to them a perfect, unassailable, impenetrable, impenetrable righteousness as a gift Whose righteousness is supplied? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He has made unto us righteousness. That's our hope. Our certain hope. While ungodly in and of ourselves, when we give up all hope of self-attained righteousness in salvation and trust in the Savior, all that he is and all that he has done counts for us. Romans 10 verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Justification by faith alone is really shorthand for justification by the person and work of Christ alone. Jesus actually saves, not merely potentially or hypothetically, he actually saves all by himself. All the sins of all the people who would ever believe in him were transferred to Christ on the cross and he bore the penalty these sins deserved. And what is transferred to these sinners is a righteousness that has never known sin, the very righteousness of Christ. That's the kind of righteousness given to me. 
a righteousness that always obeyed every command of God fully and perfectly from the heart. The wonder of it all is that now, because of Christ, God doesn't merely tolerate me, but he has declared me just, righteous, and fully pleasing to him. In fact, justification for the Christian, the one who's believed in Jesus, has already happened. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. Peace. In Hebrew, it's that familiar word shalom. It means certainly a lack of hostility, but it means much more than that. It means well-being, harmony, a relationship that is fully active, restored, enjoying one another. Peace. In the Greek New Testament, it's the word Irene. We have the name for a lady, Irene. It means peace. In the Middle East, when they say peace has broken out in the Middle East, what they mean by that is people have agreed to not fire at each other for the weekend. (laughs) But anything can change. But the peace that God gives is a settled forever peace. It's not a temporary ceasefire on God's part. (laughs) Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5 verse 1, we have, we have it in our possession, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a temporary ceasefire. We are forever justified before God through faith in the perfect Savior. Faith is simply the mechanism, the sole instrument by which Christ and his righteousness is ours. To quote Martin Luther in his Latin phrase, I am simul justus et peccator, at the same time just and sinner. Christ's own perfect righteousness is mine. Christ is mine. It's not merely that God, because of Christ, now sees me as simply just as if I'd never sinned. That would be wonderful, but it's much more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. I've heard it said, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. That's good, but it doesn't go far enough. It's not only that I'm now seen in Christ as just as if I'd never sinned, but just as if I'd always obeyed. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my word to you is this, always keep that message the main thing. Remembering the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful gospel. We understand the attacks against it through history and even in our own day. And Lord, we would lay hold of Christ and his wonderful gospel to understand that our standing before the Father is on the basis of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I I cling.
Lord, we thank you for this wonderful gospel that concerns the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We stand in it. We stand fast in the liberty of this gospel. We do want to do good works, but they're never the basis of our standing before God. For it's by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We thank you for this. We rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen.